This is the Political Show and Tell, a podcast revealing the personalities of people in political thinking. I'm your host, Tanya Lesenska. Isabel Fry is a revolutionary Yiddish singer, political activist, and a PhD candidate in musicology. I was really looking forward to the interview because the first time I met her was 12 years ago, which is a long time when you're in your late 20s, and we've always seemed to be able to pick up where we left off. We met at a scout camp by Ashomer Tzair, which is a socialist Zionist secular Jewish youth movement. Back home, we would have weekly activities created by the older members. And in the summers, we would meet everyone else from around Europe at summer camp. She recently released an album called The Millennial Bundes, and I will have a link in the description of the episode for you to check out. By the end of the year, Isabel might become an elected official for the district council of the Leopoldstadt neighborhood with the party links. One of her priorities is community welfare, and she wants to bring in more nurses and social workers to key spots of the district. So let me take you back to the roots and ask you, how did you get involved in all of this? The way I got politicized, I mean, it already started with my my home and my parents, because my parents are both journalists. And so they, we, yeah, we kind of grew up, like I grew up with the TV <laughs> running like every evening with the news and the radio in the morning and so like grew up a lot with current events and discussing a lot of politics and then it's it's kind of continued I mean I I grew up in the socialist Zionist youth movement Hashemar uh, al where which was also politi- politicized I mean in a different way today I would consider it actually more depoliticized but but For me at the time, it was still kind of a, a politicization because um, at least like, at least in theory, I grew up learning also about socialism and socialist ideals. And then after high school, I, I spent a year in Israel in a kibbutz also, or in, actually in several kibbutzim, which are like kind of these socialist communes. Um, and... Yeah, and was really, I mean, went there kind of idealistic because I really thought, okay, this is like political fulfillment and the the revolution and the better world and was a bit, um, came back a bit uh, disillusioned by it, <laughs> both by the, both by the kibbutz movement, which kind of had, had been overtaken by um, <laughs> just general capitalism <laughs> since the 1980s kind of and has had become a very marginal phenomenon and also very privatized and really not not as revolutionary as I as I thought and as it, <laughs> as I think people thought when they founded them and second disillusion was kind of also with the political realities in Israel Palestine so really kind of being confronted also by yeah just also the the conflict and the occupation and and things that I didn't know about so I think all in all, that was kind of like a, a, sh- a shocking experience to me. Um, you know, also visiting the West Bank for the first time that that really kickstarted a process of politicization. After that, Isabel moved to Amsterdam to study political science and sociology. 
This is when she started rethinking some of her previous experiences. And I, I, I moved to Amsterdam and I knew I wanted to be politically active. So I joined a, a group of activists who were also just people who wanted to be active. And it kind of emerged out of that, that you know, I realized it's also not enough to both want to be active, but it, it requires a lot of uh, it requires a lot of reflection work. And, and it also requires doing something, not just talking about being active or like planning an action, but it requires being involved with actual political movements. And that's how I got involved in, in the, for example, in the housing movement and the squatters movement, just by kind of visiting this, this squat that was close to my place. And I helped out uh, cooking. <laughs> they had dinners twice a week for, for donation. And so I helped out with cooking and doing the dishes and um, and started organizing some events there and then joined the critical student group that met there. So and that's how it kind of really rolled into like I really rolled into being an actual activist and not just a wannabe activist. So I I became part of the student movement. Uh, I was part of big university protests in 2015 where we occupied university buildings I became also kind of a feminist activist. So I, I also started a feminist committee at my university and, and organized feminist spoken word sessions and uh, tried uh, organizing around issues of consent and, and dealing with sexual assault. And towards the end of my time in Amsterdam, I also became involved in the more anti-racist and decolonial struggle. So... Yeah, a lot of uh, different things that I kind of rolled into. <laughs> That's really a lot of different topics. And it, it made me think about if you had to pick one kind of significant or favorite moment from these years, what would you say? Yeah, it, I mean, it's difficult to say. I mean, it. I think I couldn't pick a, a favorite, like topic or something because it just it keeps changing and I think that is that is good and important that it keeps being open that I'm not like a unidirectional activist only working on like climate for example but probably the most important top moment for me was really this university occupation in 2015 when I was part of a group of 30 people and we planned and we were we were we had a squat uh, together, which was like a student. It was like a, a former common room in a university building. And the university moved out and the building was empty and we occupied the common room and kept it kind of as a free student space. And from there, when this was evicted after four months, we planned the university occupation to fight the kind of the increasing like corporatization of the university and neoliberal education policy and also to fight for like the democratization of the university and we were really just 30 students and we thought basically we would occupy the building and then be arrested and then um, it would be over but it ended up being there for 11 days and what spiraled out of it was a nationwide protest movement that went on for several months and is like now part of basically protest history. <laughs> and I mean, yeah, that was really, I think that was, you know, retrospectively, I have also a lot of critiques on how the movement worked and everything. But, but for me as an activist, this was probably the most important moment of my life, realizing that just 
by being at the right place at the right time, doing the, you know, having the courage to do something that is also kind of illegal and kind of overstepping the boundaries, but still within a certain limit, that I can really be part of history, really be part of revolutionary change. And so I think that was really, yeah, we were, we were arrested, actually. We were 40 people then being arrested uh, during the eviction. And, and there were, I mean, there were thousands of people outside the building, like cheering for every person of us who was being arrested. And then the next day, the same evening, the, the head of the university board was on national television saying it's just a small group of students. And the next day, a spontaneous demonstration with over 3,000 people. And, uh, and they ended up storming the main administrative building. And then this building was occupied for seven weeks. Uh, seven, yeah, yeah, for seven, no, for like three months. So it was really a popular uprising. And it just kick-started from that. And yeah, and that, that, that was amazing to, to be part of that. And I think that's something that I haven't done these kinds of exciting things for a while, but uh, it's it's something that stays with you. This experience of you know the breathing revolutionary air is <laughs> something that stays. Yeah. So it sounds like you had a lot going on already in the Netherlands. What prompted you to go back to Vienna? I didn't necessarily want to come back, but since then I've I've actually been happy living back here in Vienna. That's where I'm from, and I'm I feel quite at home here and I have a I started a PhD program here I kind of like started singing Yiddish songs already more in 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 Amsterdam and I organized like a little concert in a squat there and I performed at protests there but I really started to perform in concert in Vienna and so it's also like my my whole yeah the 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 center point of my artistic activities is also here so I think that's kind of also why it's nice for me to so already when I met you, and I think that was about 12 years ago, by that time you were, you know, you could sing, you can play the guitar. But when did you discover Yiddish revolutionary music? Yeah, this was something that I discovered when I was in Amsterdam and right when I was the university occupations and when I was becoming really politically active. And I think it's it's something that emerged out of an identity crisis that I had then that came from um, my estrangement from my my Jewishness and my Jewish heritage and and the community in Vienna, um, which I felt estranged from also because of my politicization and because until then, most of my Jewish life had centered around, well, the community in Vienna, which is also, you know, its own kind of slightly conservative. I mean, even though my family is definitely more liberal and and my friends also but still um in general a bit more conservative and then also having then gone to israel with with my youth movement and and kind of become also disillusioned from from zionism and from kind of nationalism in general i would say <laughs> became becoming an anti-nationalist um that was a painful process for me because until then most of my Jewish identity had been wrapped around um, this this idea of Zionism and kind of identification through via Israel at least even though maybe I was never had such an emotional connection to it but but at least on like an intellectual level 
it was very much tied up to it. So then when I became, you know, really politicized also on the left and really became someone who was against nationalism and, and an anti-imperialist and an anti-capitalist, it was just not compatible with those parts that had been my Jewishness before that. I was also in a new city, so I didn't really have any Jewish friends there or like a few, but I, I didn't agree with them politically again. So it was a difficult. And and I the truth was I did feel estranged from it. And I didn't tell people really that I was to, I mean, of course, my close friends knew, but, you know, like political activists, they, I didn't really tell them so much. I didn't know how to include it. It seemed like it's, you know, it's also religion, so that's not left wing or something. So it was hard for me to to find a connection. And when I discovered these songs, you know, and it was really just like the first song that I heard was Mordechai Gebirtik's Abedlose Marsch, which is just a great song and it's about like the, the march of the unemployed and it's just like political I mean this is Yiddish music political and like militant <laughs> and and it just, it just it just pointed to this it opened up this whole world that I until then I hadn't really known existed this whole world of this whole tradition of left-wing Jewish um and also secular um revolutionaries you know <laughs> the the workers movement and at that point it didn't really matter that this was not part of my history necessarily or my family's history because they were way more bourgeois than that <laughs> um but it, it it mattered to me because i because because as an activist i could really identify with this and i was so inspired by this music because it, it comes from people who actually believed that you know, capitalism can be overcome and this world can look differently. And it's something that I think is really difficult to feel nowadays. It's something that in our day and age, um, this capacity to imagine that things could be otherwise has kind of been taken away from us. So that's why this was really meaningful to me. And it was also, it just unified these two elements of my identity, being Jewish and being left-wing at the same time. Maybe also Yiddish. Yiddish also united that because Yiddish is also this kind of hybrid language of, you know, I, I have a connection to it also through German because it is very similar to German and it it has this connection. It's like also originally comes from Western Europe, then was spoken mostly in Eastern Europe where also my family is from, but then but then was written in Hebrew letters. And it's also like, it, it sounds a bit like German, but it's written in Hebrew letters and I, I, I can read Hebrew, I can write in Hebrew. Like it's, it, it kind of you unified all these different elements. <laughs> what Isabel said resonated with some issues I have been thinking about lately, such as workers' rights and conditions. However, being Bulgarian, I've always struggled to reframe these issues without being reminded of my country's communist past. Listening to her songs opened up a different historical perspective into thinking about these concepts. I mean, I, I definitely also hear what you're saying and it's I think it's important to also distinguish between popular movements or like workers <laughs> like very grassroots movements or just you know workers who are writing a song about being fed up <laughs> with their working conditions and distinguishing between that and distinguishing between the you know capital C communist regimes of the 20th century which I think there's a whole world in between that I'm definitely more inspired by the more grassroots um, 
the more grassroots type of socialism that existed before any of this, before there were any communist regimes and also, you know, of, of Jewish anarchists or, or people, you know, more the romantic kind of revolutionaries, less than the, than the party, <laughs> the um, party bureaucrats. <laughs> and I think that's what the, this music is also connecting to. And it's more about like, you know, a lot of them are, were union workers or just part of these kind of these kind of activities and, and on a very grassroots level. And I think that's also something that is still very relevant today. Um, also these, what you were pointing towards, I mean, the workers' rights haven't really like, yeah, they're, they're still not good. <laughs> so there's a lot to, to be done and, and that still needs to be done somehow through this kind of, yeah, through a kind of like, union work and through you know forms of class struggle in a way so if i'm not mistaken your music and the places you perform at um it doesn't serve just a cultural type of purpose but you actually perform also at political rallies for example so i know that politicians usually invite musicians as a sort of entertainment but can you expand a bit on how what you do is different that was the primary point of why I started to sing these songs was not to sing it in concert and not to sing it as a form of entertainment, but actually as a form of protest and really performing them in protest and at rallies and, and performing them, for example, at a, at a small university occupation, there was like a tent protest. I'm pretty sure that's where I, I just got my guitar. I just brought it there and I just started singing this Yiddish song, the Loi Police against the police. And, and then a bit after a, a while, the police came and evicted us. So it was like, it was immediately clear to me that, you know, I, I, I wanted to, to use this music in, for a political function. And the funny thing is that a lot of these songs these protest songs, really, these Yiddish protest songs, they had exactly this function. I mean, they were written by people who wanted to write them, not because they wanted to make great art and share it with the world, also that, of course, but also because they wanted to mobilize people for social struggles. And so, and, you know, to sing it at rallies, for example, because it's music plays an important role in politics. So that's what I've been continuing to do. And it's something that, I mean, for example, in Vienna, I started performing at these um, weekly anti-government protests against the right-wing coalition, which was the conservative party together with the really like ethno-nationalist extreme right party that we had in government. And there were protests every week and I started performing there and it actually spiraled quite a bit. And I ended up performing on the day the coalition broke in front of a group of 5,000 people and like a manifestation. So it was like a really, you know, big moment so that, that happened also through that. And just recently I joined this new left-wing political party and I ran with them also. I ran for a local council, like on the district level. And I also performed there. So I was kind of like a house musician who there was a tour every day in every district of Vienna, 23 districts. And I performed at like 10 of those. <laughs> I know some people in the political sphere, such as analysts, experts, and activists, are very attached to the distinction between themselves and politicians. I wanted to know why an activist such as Isabel ran at the elections. To my surprise, she didn't really have an answer yet. Still, she saw herself primarily as an activist running for office instead of someone who wants to be a politician. 
She joined the party because it emerged from the protest movement she talked about. What was valuable for her at these protests is how people from different backgrounds came together and combined the traditionally left-wing emphasis on class issues with topics such as racism, feminism, and the queer movement. But most importantly, this was a grassroots movement. But yeah, I didn't really, I never really considered myself wanting to become a politician. And so it was also surprising for me. I was asked whether I want to run and, and I said, yes, why not? <laughs> I think I'll try doing a campaigning. And campaigning is also a bit like a, like a form, like a protest, but just like a very long, <laughs> long form of protest. <laughs> It's a bit, a bit different, but it's also a form of activism. I mean, standing on the street with flyers and handing people flyers. Definitely. It, I think that actually one of the more complicated things to do when having studying political science and that sort of thing is actually like putting your face and name out there together with your ideas and saying like, you know, put your trust in me and this is what I'll try to do and taking responsibility for people. So this is kind of like why I'm so interested in how you did it. Yeah, definitely. So in a way, yeah, in a way, I think it is different, but it's also definitely changed my opinion on, of electoral politics because I don't think it's it's so different as I would have thought <laughs> at first. Um, but that being said, it's really also... I mean, I believe in this party because it is very grassroots. And if it, if it, you know, if it grows and grows also into like a, a big party bureaucracy, then I'm, I'm not sure I would still believe so much in it. But that's okay, you know. I would still, I'm, I'm also not not so attached to to party names. I'm more attached to movements and momentum, and and very connected to. I met really great. Uh, a lot that we had a lot of young uh, activists joining the party who are very motivated and and I, I really believe in that you know I mean just yesterday people from the party just spontaneously organized really successful like, big demonstration against uh, deportations because the government deported uh, a, a woman and her two daughters to Armenia I think and it was uh, It was super spontaneous and really well organized. And there were over a thousand people, even though it was raining, like pouring rain. <laughs> and I mean, that's that's incredible. And that's, I think, really the kind of um, politics that I'm interested in is one that is both in the council. Taking off from what you said about being basically anti-nationalist and taking into account the diversity in Vienna and people's ability to vote, And this general kind of um, idea of no separation, no borders. Are you fond of the European Union as a project? What is your take on it? The EU, I mean, I just wouldn't classify it as an anti-nationalist project or even a post-nationalist project. I know it's sometimes described in this way. And I definitely, you know, me as an EU citizen, I definitely also experience the privileges of, of living in in a kind of like semi-post-nationalist island <laughs> that is, you know, Schengen, for example, and being able to just move around the EU freely. But it's it's really a selective privilege. I mean, it, it really means that I am part of a, a particular trans-European class that is has these privileges. And at the same time, the, the other side of this European 
post-nationalism is what is happening right now in uh, on the island of Lesbos, for example, in Greece, where you have um, refugees being locked up in under horrible conditions for years to come with no hope for for any change in the future. You have really militarized border regime, people drowning in the Mediterranean. And this is not post-nationalism. Like for me, it's, it's you know, a, a post-nationalism or like an anti-nationalism would actually imply kind of also a deconstruction of these border regimes. But to just create an, an island for like a particular privileged class of people, I'm very supportive of the fact of how European integration also enables like integration also between like West and East and on these kind of dynamics, you know. But at the same time, I think we can't separate it from um, its consequences outside and, and on the border, especially. And not just the people who are not getting into Europe, but also the people who are living in Europe who don't have European citizenship, who are like refugees without paper or something. I mean, that's all part of this same border regime. And the other side of it is also that the EU, I mean, I'm not, I'm not like anti-EU. I just have my, my critiques of, of the way it's, it's, it's being run in that, in that I don't consider it really left-wing and <laughs> not a left-wing project. And I think I'm more on the lines of, of yeah, left-wing crit- critique of, of, of the EU that, that is demanding also more democratization, you know, that not, for example, the commission and the the council have all the, all the power that it's not like a you know run only by executive power that's not that's not democratic so if you um, could take uh, it apart and put it back together what how would it look like the least that i would do would like give the parliament some power that is actually more than you know symbolic power um and and restructure it to to have as much like, democratic control the problems that we face in this world are too fundamental to change them on a on a in this technical way i mean any technical solution is still going to in the end benefit certain ruling classes more than others and so it 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 needs a kind of like fundamental change in also power distribution but uh, yeah, I mean, I would I would open borders basically also <laughs> to the outside. I'm not scared of that. I know people are, but I'm I'm not, and I'm not scared to demand that to say no. We shouldn't have borders. <laughs> we should give allow people to to live where they live, where they want to live, and allow freedom of movement. I mean, we live in a world, just on a global scale, where capital is has more freedom of movement than people have. And that's ridiculous. So <laughs> the least what we could do is have the same same amount of freedom of movement for people as we have for capital. So I've actually had a similar discussion about, you know, opening up the borders and letting people in and precisely the refugees you were talking about. And I was talking to someone who actually lived in Sofia in the neighborhoods where most of the refugees would go. So I I didn't live in a neighborhood like that. Uh, So for me, it was very easy to say, all right, let's open up everything and let people in. You know, for that person, it was harder because all of a sudden, uh, the environment around them changes completely. So the type of people they see, and I think it's, uh, we cannot pretend like there is no cultural difference also. So what would you say how could we kind of 
make sure that we're not treating people as as not people by you know denying them like the dignity to be able to find a job and find a home and uh leave the place they arrived in but in, in the same time kind of you know the people that are already there are feeling like uh, you know that it's not something that's being imposed on them and, and their lives are changing completely out of the blue just what you described you know the idea of like okay the neighborhood where all the refugees come you know like i also wouldn't like that i wouldn't like that my house you know where i live and suddenly it was basically like a refugee camp that wouldn't be good that wouldn't be good for me that wouldn't also that wouldn't be good for the refugees first of all like the, keeping people cramped together in, in 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 the same places that is not good integration policy that is not good humanitarian policy in in any way you know so it's it's a question of, of practicality of like how do you organize it it's not a question of whether yes or no, but it's a question of how you organize it. And the worst way to do it is, for example, by having people in refugee camps on, on the island of Lesbos. I mean, I understand why the inhabitants of Lesbos are really angry and don't want refugees there. I understand that, of course. The refugees are also angry. They also don't want to be there. Why, why can't they just, you know, rent a place in, in Vienna? I mean, I it would be great to have a, a, a family a neighbor and family as a neighbor you know that's that's completely different so it's really a question of how and i think right now the european union paradigm is really you know it's only thinking about the technicalities of how to keep people out that's the dominant paradigm <laughs> but it's not we could just turn it around we can just put all this money that goes into policy research of how to like, and this money that goes into weapons and, and militarization of borders, we could put it all into like ways of how to get people here, how to welcome them, how to integrate them, how to, or like not just integrate, I mean, the language of integration, you know, I don't want to use it too much, but how to just like offer people resources that they need and that make co-living better. <laughs> and have language courses and intercultural activities and festivities and give people work permits, you know, it's, it's, it's not so difficult. I mean, I think if you fundamentally believe that, you know, humans are humans and are the same anywhere, then that is not a problem. Then it's just a, it's, it's basically a sociological question of how to organize it. I want to take you a bit back to your music and talk about this song that you discovered in the Jewish Public Library of Montreal. So it's a song that's about women gaining the right to vote, um, and it has three versions. One version has a lot of a bit of uh, misogynistic irony. The second version has less of that, and now the third version is your version. How did you adapt it? What did you do? Yeah, I mean, so the maybe to start the recording that I that I heard in Montreal was the second version, which was a, a recording from 1921, sung by a Yiddish singer and and actress in who was living in New York City, and and she performed the song. It's called "Alle Weiber Megen Stimmen," so all women can vote, and she sung the song. You know, also in the way she performed it. I mean, it was just like majestic <laughs> with a majestic voice and tone and proud and she also really subtly changed 
Megenstimmen, so can vote, to Misenstimmen, which is must vote. And so when I first heard the song, I just thought like, oh, that's an amazing tune that is all about like women's women's voting rights, which is, you know, it's like a, a, a suffragette song, basically what I thought. And then I made, did some more research because I wanted to find the, the text also and, and, and the sheet music, which I never found. But I found another recording from the year 1920, which was when the song was written by a Jewish comedian and songwriter and theater actor named Ruben Doctor, who wrote a lot of very misogynistic songs. I mean, if you just look at his, his repertoire, I mean, he was a great songwriter, but uh, yeah a lot of the themes were very misogynistic and the song was introduced with a joke that was kind of a sexist joke of saying like ah you know have you heard about this new thing the women's voting rights well i think everyone all the men are really angry about it but i think it's great because my wife she never shuts up and then if i tell her now i can tell her like shut up go vote <laughs> you don't have to bother me with your stuff so it was introduced with this joke and then the way it also was sung it was with this sarcastic undertone so that's how i realized the whole song was actually written kind of sarcastically and my theory was that clara gold a year after also you know women's right to vote had been established wouldn't really have sung it in like a the same sarcastic snarky way that this other male singer sung it the, the year it was written. I mean, I, I can't imagine that. And I, I also didn't hear it from the recording. <laughs> That's, I mean, I, I, I trust my intuition that when I heard it, I was like, this is a feminist song. I'm, you know, I didn't think that it was not feminist, but it was appropriated in like a very subtle way. And so I took that as an inspiration to also appropriate it for my own purposes and to think of like, how, how do I look onto the issue of women's rights, uh, women's, the, um, the women's right to vote 100 years later. Because for me, I think I'm, I'm very much part of this feminist generation of like more the, the third wave of feminism where the right to vote is definitely not enough. I mean, that's not that it was really something that was imagined to start the revolution or end patriarchy. And that hasn't happened. And there are so many other forms of oppression also. And and I, I try to rewrite the song also in a way that is a critique of this kind of liberal feminism, that if we just have equality on a formal level, that everything is fine. But it's not, because the issues are more structural than that. And, you know, just if we have equal representation on, like, big boards of big corporations or in governments, doesn't mean that inequality is over. It's, it actually reinforces it in a whole another way. So that's why I... I rewrote it and I, I said, it's time to change our strategy and join to fight all tyrants. <laughs> that was my reinterpretation of it. But it wasn't the only thing you said, uh, because the one bit I could really understand, which is in English, is you also asked, like, a hundred years later, women, what have we done for other women, for women who work and I'm under the impression, but I don't remember completely. It was about um, women who are in the caregiving sector. Yeah. So the text is, um, and now 100 years have passed. Let's see where it has brought us. Women in boards of companies, in parliaments and startups. And then the question, what have wealthy women done for care workers and migrants? <laughs> it's time to change our strategy and join to fight all tyrants. That's how I how I basically rewrote the English part. And I also rewrote parts of the Yiddish part because it was um, 
it was impossible to transcribe actually i even sent it to like some yiddish professors but it was just from the recording it was hard to understand what <clears throat> what was actually being said so i rewrote it a bit in a way that i thought it was what it meant and then i also included this line of saying you know because the second verse it lists all these different jobs that women would do when once there there is equal voting rights and that suddenly women are going to be like captains and diplomats and these kind of things and and then i also rewrote this line of saying women are going to work really toil really hard horven um for our liberation so it's also kind of like i introduced this switch in subject to say like they will work hard for for us which us meaning my generation of women also and then that is the transition to the third verse one of Isabel's many occupations is her PhD. Currently enrolled in musicology, she is researching Yiddish singing practices of contemporary singers in the cultural revival movement. I was curious to know what was the link between her PhD and her political activism and what she wanted to do with it in the future. I want to be a researcher also. I'm now, you know, doing a PhD in musicology, which is a new subject for me and I don't have a background in musicology. Um, but it's an interdisciplinary program, which is great. And I, I do really like working in interdisciplinary settings. Before that, I, I had studied medical anthropology, which was also very interdisciplinary. So I'm not sure whether I'll, you know, I'll stay in musicology or I'll stay in Jewish studies or these kind of things. That's not, that's kind of open, but I, I, that's okay. I mean, researchers switch between that all the time. It's, I think it's, it's, you know. First step is is doing a PhD, but I would like to to keep working, um, keep working in academia. I felt like academia and activism were an odd combination, because academia requires so much patience and diligence, while activism relies on explosive energy and constant movement. And the music is also again like performing is also again another a whole another world. A whole nother, you know, and like creating art and recording music and these kind of things, which I, I think that's, I mean, I love it. <laughs> it's a really good combination. I feel really fulfilled at the moment with that, with that combination. It's, uh, I have time to sit down and think and, and I have time to be like, okay with things not being thought out. And at the same time, I can also do things <laughs> and be active. So, yeah. I mean, for, for me, it also makes a lot of sense, the combination, but I don't know, maybe it doesn't for other people, but for me, it's, uh, well, it's, it also just kind of happened. All right. So tell me in terms of, you know, your musical career, you had an album come out in September. What is this about? It's, it's an album of Yiddish revolutionary and uh, resistance songs. And it's, it's called Millennial Bundist. So it's uh, kind of, the Bund, the, the, the biggest uh, Jewish socialist party of, in Eastern Europe um, at the turn of the century. And the tradition of the Bund, which is the, the Bundism, which is very much this like Jewish socialist, but also kind of proud diaspora, also anti-Zionist, um, but also kind of anti-assimilationist communist uh, movement, you know? And and in I I think I'm... I'm part of this kind of like neo-Bundist revival of, of young Jews today who are inspired by the ideas of the Bund and also because of 
because it answers to some problems that we see today. And that's why I called it millennial Bundist, because I also identify quite a bit as a, as a millennial in a way. It's also a bit random in a way what songs are on there, because started I didn't know so many Yiddish songs. So I, some of them are just like songs that were very popular in, in the German-speaking world, the few Yiddish songs that, that, that were popularized that I learned um, and that I... Sometimes they are explicitly political and sometimes I just politicize them. So I also perform songs and then give different interpretations of context. Um, I also wrote that into my booklet. But yeah, so it's basically, um, it's, it's just me with guitar singing <laughs> and sometimes joined by a, a bass clarinet and one, one recording of, of the protest song that is also includes a recording of the the crowd, uh, the manifestation of 5,000 people. <laughs> I put that, mixed that into the, the song as well. So yeah, it came out end of September and it's a bit sad, of course, to release an album in pandemic times and not be able to perform and present it. So I'm happy <laughs> if people want to order it. And if I had to play one song of your album, which one should I play? Oof, that's hard to say. I mean... Maybe Albert Losemarsch, which I mentioned before, which was the first song that I started with. And so you're or maybe the working on a new one. I'm working on two new albums, actually. Oh, wow. Yeah, one of them is with a duo project that I started with a, a friend of mine who's also a Yiddish singer, and she's also living in Vienna. And we're a duo called Soveles, which are little owls. And so we do these arrangements of like very also kind of traditional Yiddish songs, Yiddish folk songs that are very much from like women's, women themed songs, you know, Yiddish, like actual folk songs. So like lullabies, children's songs, love songs, like these kind of, this kind of repertoire that we, a lot of it that we find in archives that have been recently been digitized. And, and we arrange them for two voices and we sometimes perform them a cappella and we're going to record it also with a cello. So that's going to be very, very nice and, and exciting. And the other album is an album with, a, I have a, basically a new trio, which is called Isabel Frey Trio. <laughs> and me and, a, and a, a clarinetist who also plays bass clarinet and an accordionist. And we're making an album of um, basically of resistance songs and, and also kind of like focusing on Jewish resistance against the Nazis and the partisans um, in the Holocaust, but then mixing that with kind of also new Yiddish songs and also our own settings and compositions to, to create this line, <laughs> this line of the different generations of resistance. I mean, to also show that the continuation of Yiddish music and culture is also in a way a form of resistance. Thank you for listening in today. Our other episodes are available on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts. And now, I leave you with Isabel's Abendlosemarsch. <laughs> Wasser 
Arbeitsloses Kind. 